he invites her in and he directs her to the bedroom. And as she walks into the bedroom, he pulls out a claw hammer and commences to smashing her head in. So instinctively, she reaches back to guard her head and he just about rips her fingers off of her hand with this hammer. The next thing I have on video is her running away from him. She comes back on video in another set of cameras and she's screaming for help. She, her clothes are torn, her face is just beaten. It just looks like it's been used as a punching bag. And you can see in the back of the video, the suspect walking on camera, across the camera frame, and then off camera. It's not unusual when we're working a serial rape cases that we're identifying lots and lots of victims. And then we're working really hard to get them to cooperate with us and go forward and prosecute. And as I mentioned earlier, the numbers that don't want to report or acknowledge it are very, very high. So if I'm able to file three cases or five cases on somebody, I can probably prove 10, 12, 13 cases, which means that that person probably has done three, four, five times that because sexual assault being an underreported offense. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Sherlock Holmes, 1890. Welcome back, Bridging the Divide listeners. This is Joe, I'm with Josh, and the breathtaking Misty V. In 1887, British author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle brought the world's greatest detective in a series of short stories and novels called Sherlock Holmes. Detective Holmes was known for his reasoning capabilities. His investigative technique relied on the power of deduction and the use of science. He did not theorize before gathering data, as he believed it was a capital mistake to theorize before one has data, because one would twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. The city of Dallas is fortunate to also have its own Detective Holmes. He was born in Brooklyn, New York. He joined Dallas Police Department in 2004 and has worked in various units. But in 2015, Detective Holmes found his true calling as he joined the Dallas Police Sexual Assault Unit. He has specialized training and expertise in neurobiology of trauma. He has investigated over 20 serial rapists in the city of Dallas. He also utilizes his art degree in formal forensic art training as a forensic artist for the Dallas Police Department. That includes age progression and facial reconstruction. He is married 
the father of four boys, one who is a patrol officer of the city of Dallas, following in dad's footsteps. When it comes to solving crimes, it is elementary, Watson. Detective Holmes, welcome to the show. Why'd you come in here dressed in that trench coat and a Sherlock's hat? <laughs> Just for you. Uh, Exhibitionism well, you, at its best. You are a <laughs> very, very sexy <laughs> SOB in that. Thank you for being here, seriously. I've been wanting to get, I've been really excited about your episode for months. You are going to be our, really kind of our first true detective crimes against persons. So okay. no pressure at all. No, none at all. No, we we probably going to trash this episode after it's done. We actually hear it, but you know, I, I want to make you feel good. Well, I appreciate that. Okay, and thank you, you all, for having me. All right, you ready to dive into this? Sure. All right, I'm going to start off with some slow balls before we get to the fastballs under your chin. Um, you were born in New York. Describe growing up there. Not much different than growing up here. No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, thank you. Thanks everybody for tuning in. And, uh, are you a Yankee fan? Of course. Really? What about what about the Mets? No. <laughs> <laughs> did you Did you go to like Yankee games? No. Growing up, really? All no. Right. No. Did you You still have family there? All my aunts, uncles, and cousins are still there. Okay. Cause see, I wanted to get you on, especially when I found out you were born in Brooklyn, New York, to because I want to. I want to capture that northeastern part of the United States with our listeners. So I figured this would do it. Where did you go to college and what was your degree in? I went to Virginia Commonwealth University, so VCU in Richmond, Virginia. And the, my degree is in art education. Okay. Why that major? Well, I couldn't get into college any other way. So okay. I got into the art program and then I thought, well, I have to actually be employable. So... I figured, why not education? I can always fall back on that. Have you always had like a just a natural artistic mind? I suppose. Yeah. Did, okay. Even like as a kid, I mean, did you, my daughter, she, she, uh, I think, of course I'm looking at eight-year-olds, but I think she has a real artistic mind, and I hope that she um, grooms that through her whole life and, and she sticks with it because I think she's pretty good. Of course, I'm, you know, I'm an idiot when it comes to art, but... I know I, I'm going to get more into your background in art later on. That's a kind of, that's a unique, that's a unique uh, major, especially for somebody in law enforcement. It is. My mother was a pretty amazing portrait artist. Oh, okay. So Most okay. of my family are all very math oriented people, except myself and my one cousin who is uh, with FDNY. We're the two artists, along with my mom, of course. Are they still active in FDN? What? Yes, he's still active. Really? How, how many years? Uh, I think he joined the same year I joined DPD, so 17, 18 years. Okay. Uh, what's the name? Howard Holmes. Howard Holmes, shout out, from Dallas, Texas. Wow. To, I, want, I would love to get some uh, New York firefighters on and uh, NYPD on. I'm sure we could help you out. Rich in history there on, on, on both sides. When did you decide you wanted to go into law enforcement and why? Well, that's an interesting question because other than my one cousin, Howard, every Holmes boy is in law enforcement. My father is a retired uh, postal inspector. My middle brother just retired from Raleigh PD. My youngest brother is an FBI agent. 
as you all know, my son is an officer here on Dallas PD. I have an uncle that retired from NYPD. And um, Howard's older brother, my cousin Greg, I'm sure you all may have seen, he used to be on that show, Manhunters, U.S. Marshals. Yeah, yeah. That's my cousin. Wow. Yes. So we're all law enforcement or first responders. And my mother even worked for Fairfax County Fire and Rescue. <laughs> that, that is a legacy. Damn. So you had no choice. No, believe it or not, when I graduated from college, I went into the business world. And my family would say, when are you going to get a real job and become, go into law enforcement or become a first responder? So it took several years. Here I am. It reminds me of like these Italian families where they're just like mafia family and all in the same business. It's like the Sopranos, right? Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Now that that sounds like a stereotypical New York, I mean Northeastern United States family. And and interestingly, they are not the reason why I became interested in law enforcement. But what were the holidays like? Like so, so everyone's a copper or, or law enforcement. Y'all get together in the holidays, and then what is it? Just comparing stories, or? Well, <clears throat> not really. It's just no different than the rest of us sitting around. You don't always want to continue to think about and rehash all of what we see and deal with. Right. That's interesting. I had no idea. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I really had no idea you come from such a first responder family. And like I said, that's not the reason I got interested in law enforcement. I was in college, and, and my job in college was the extra job for Richmond police officers. And so I got to know a bunch of the guys that worked on their canine squad and became really close and friends with them. They got me interested in law enforcement. Not the family, the friends. That, so you just... Yes. Okay, wow. All right. Well, my next question is, why Dallas? Why did you... Did you apply for other agencies? So I applied for other agencies back in the mid-90s when I was graduating college. Okay. And um, back then, I don't know if y'all had been trying to apply back then. It was very difficult to get in. You would show up to testing and there'd be 300 people there for three spots. So I wound up going into the business world and being brought here to Texas to work in the business world. Mm. Did you have any Texas ties when you got down here for the job? My ex-wife's parents were living here. Okay, so in the Dallas area? Yes. Okay, so that's how you made it down here. Okay, so I was always wondering how you... Did Did you ever entertain applying for uh, NYPD? No. Really? Why not? Well, so, I was living in Virginia at the time. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> okay, well, that would be... Well, so you just went to Dallas. Yes. Is much closer. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> did you have... Before you got here to Dallas, did you have a perception of how Dallas, Texas was and how Texas was growing up in New York? Did, and, and was your perception reality or really off base oh of course it was really so uh, all i had known really was the east coast living in new york and virginia yeah and so i had images in my head of desert and cactuses and so the most amazing thing i'll never forget i was landing in the plane i looked out the window and i saw green grass and trees and i thought no oh, this isn't quite what i thought and then I remember being on 635, leaving uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, and just being amazed at how much sky there was. I wasn't used to seeing that much sky. Because you're surrounded by buildings all the time. Buildings and trees. trees. Wow. How did you uh, like that Texas heat when you first, <laughs> it first hit you? 
actually, I really enjoyed it because the East Coast is very humid. Really? Humid, humid, like down in Houston. So it felt a lot drier here. So at first, I thought it was great. Yeah. Now at, it's miserable. At first, yeah. <laughs> 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 Can you explain the process of when you applied uh, for Dallas PD, when you left the business world and got into Dallas, and, and how that went? Well, I, I wanted to do something different. I always wanted to go into law enforcement. And I thought, well, I'm going to go apply to Dallas PD before it gets too late so I can always say I did it. Just check it off my bucket list. Six weeks later, I got a phone call, report to the academy on Friday. It was that fast. What year was that? 2004. After you left the academy, I'm not going to get into the academy because everybody listening has heard the tales of the academy, and I'm sure that it was similar to what we've already talked about. Where did you go after you graduated and got, got on the streets? To Northeast Patrol. And what kind, of, what, what kind of work did you gravitate to once you got out there? All the fun stuff. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Chasing dope. What? Stolen cars, okay. executing arrest warrants. They got that up northeast? Hmm. They, they Believe it or not, <laughs> it really is not just the country club. Wow. Hmm. Oh. No about that. I'll have to research that. I've had some other northeast folks in here, and they, they try to pump that up too, but I ain't buying it. Mm-hmm. Not <laughs> all po- real police work is done in southeast, Joe. <laughs> what? I, no. I, why would you come on Blasphemy. this program and tell such a lie? It's a shitty thing to do, Alan. Um, so you, you went to the CRT, was that at Northeast? Yes. Well, so I did operation disruption first. Okay. And then when I came back to Northeast, it was about a year after that, they started the CRT 2010, program. right? It was about that. No, it was t- 2009 because I became a detective in 2009. Okay. Yeah. So you were on, you were briefly on the CRT. Yes. I was doing deployment and CRT. Okay. We've had the listeners that we've described what deployment is in CRT um, is a crime response team. Uh, You kind of just basically do what you were already doing in patrol, chasing dope, guns, uh, stolen cars, high crime areas. But you're an official. You had a title then and you had a team. Right. And I felt special. Yeah, you felt special. Did you get to wear a cool patch on the back of your? No. No. Yeah, they came after you. I think. Yeah, we got these big ass patches says Dallas police. Like we were cool and set us apart. You left CRT in Northeast. You became a property crime detective. Can you describe that? The process of becoming a property yeah, crime well, detective? Well, when you're going from doing what you're doing on the street to actually doing detective work, can you talk about that transition of how that was so different different for you? Oh, it was very different. Okay. So it's almost like, remember when you went through the academy and you learned how to be a police officer and then you hit the streets and now you have to really learn how to be a police officer, right? It's the same thing when you become a detective – you have to learn to think and work completely different than the way you did in patrol. So, but at the same time, I took to it like a fish to water, possibly because of the private industry corporate work. Really? Like what, what were the differences? Just the way that you're building a case, uh, the way you're trying to develop evidence, the way all of the documentation that goes into an investigation. Interesting. Well, you you seem to kind of have a knack for putting puzzles together. Uh, is and and working in those property crime units, they get so many. They get inundated with crimes from 
burglar motor vehicle to burglar rehab building mm-hmm. criminal mischief they get everything dealing with there's property involved and there's so many and sometimes you have great suspect leads prisoner cases and then you'll have minimal leads you have to try to build up to probable cause to get it to actually get a suspect in a warrant um you're drinking from a fire hose when it when it comes to, the, to that unit so you have to learn really quickly on the entire case filing process and 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 evidence gathering and it, and I, I know a lot of property there's a very frustrating job because it's it's never in it's a waterfall of just shit it there's a lot of cases i was getting over 100 cases a month starting from day one wow and you're here you are trying to learn and wow what do you feel like of those cases best prepared you for where you are now what types i don't even know that they did to be honest um because even after over five years as a property crimes detective, coming up to Capers and working in the sex assault unit, it was, again, like learning brand new uh, the way that we were going to investigate and build a case. So it was probably five, a good year before I felt comfortable. What made you apply for sex assaults? That's a big jump from property crimes to, to that type of offense. It is. Um, when I first got to Northeast Investigative, we still had robberies, individual robberies. And I wound up working a lot of different cases. For instance, um, burglary of a habitation with intent to commit sex assault, where a same kit wasn't completed. For whatever reason, I wound up working that case and filing that case, um, as well as other ones similar to that. And so you know, robberies that were actually aggravated assaults. So I had gotten a pretty good taste for the crimes against persons type cases. And my sergeant at the time, Sergeant Danny Muniz, had been a sex assault detective prior to becoming a sergeant and then ultimately my sergeant at Northeast. And he encouraged me to apply for sex assaults. He said I had the personality, I had the drive, the tenacity, and so... I actually listened. Personality. Hmm. Can you explain that? Would well, you would you believe your personality how it prepares you more than other detectives for that type of offense and investigation? Well, we are friends, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that already yeah. gives me a leg up, right? You know what? I, I retract that question is I got it. I get it. No. Um, (laughs) rape isn't about sex in most cases, but power and control. Do you believe that? And why? That is absolutely a fact. It is about power and control. It is not about sex. Um, a rapist is wanting to reinforce his power, feel like a man, prove his virility as a man, or take out his anger on somebody and depending on the type of rapist profile and the case you can very based on the details of the case you can very quickly figure out which bucket a suspect falls in there's different types of different types of suspects right yes can you kind of loosely without giving too many trade secrets right give description of each sure Uh, The two biggest buckets are going to be power or anger, right? So with power, like I said earlier, it's more about domination, control, reinforcing their virility as a man. 
with anger, they want to take their anger out on somebody. They're angry at their mother, their wife, their girlfriend, their boss that happens to be a female. So whoever they're assaulting is taking the place of that individual that they're angry with. Do they tell you that in the interview? Oh, of course not. There's no street cred to being a rapist. How do you know that? That there's no street cred? No, that they're angry. I don't want to get into too many details, okay, sure. uh, but it's you're going to see it in the details of the case. Okay. Just the little things that they do and say in the interview and, and then the actual act of, of, the, of the rape itself. Right. Okay. So it's the... So when most people think about rape and sexual assault, it's what you see in the movies and what you see on TV, right? Most of the time, that's not what it looks like. Most of the time, it's not a stranger that's going to break into your house, right? It's going to be somebody that is known to the survivor. And the things that happen during the offense, things that are said, things that are done, will are very large indicators to what type of individual we're dealing with. I believe there was an FBI agent that said, show me the survivor and I can show you the suspect. Wow. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Can you loosely uh, walk us through the process of an investigation without giving, again, without giving away trade secrets, uh, invest, investigative similarities and differences for offenses? Sure. So um, I'll loosely walk through the steps of just a general investigation, right. regardless whether it's a sexual assault or a robbery or burglary. The first thing that I'm going to do is start downloading 911 calls, body-worn camera, dash cam footage, and reviewing all of that for some of the details that don't always make it into a police report. I'm going to do uh, background on everybody associated with the case. If a suspect is loosely identified, I'm going to do everything I can to positively identify that suspect and do background on them. And that's before I even contact the complainant. Once I contact the complainant, we'll give it at least three days, and we could talk more about that in a little bit, but we'll bring the complainant in and we'll do a really deep dive detailed interview that will last I've done them as quickly as an hour and I've been in there longer than three hours wow and then from there any other kind of evidence or from what I've learned from that interview you know I'll follow up on those leads before I contact the suspect are the majority of your complainants women yes do you have some men complainants? We do. Uh, like if you had to do a percentage, what would, if you were guessing? Probably 80-20. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's... I was expecting. So male, male complainants, what about female offenders? Are there female offenders in, in some of these? Could be both. So do the females do it for the same reason as the male offenders? You talk about power and anger. Is it the same? So sexual assault and rape is a very underreported crime, right? So already the statistics are off. Sure. Of the sexual assaults that are reported, the overwhelming majority are females. Very small percentage are males. 
the reason for that, and we can talk more about this as well, mm-hmm. is there's a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of embarrassment that survivors don't want to deal with. There's just think about, or an easy example is think about a female who lives alone. We have a suspect who breaks into her residence and sexually assaults her. So this individual has come into her house, which is a big breach, right, of your privacy, huge invasion, now has invaded her body, the one thing that only she can really um, give permission to, right? So it's an even deeper violation. Now she's going to call police. And now we have police officers showing up, going through her house, looking through doors and closets and around the corner, After that next invasion, she has to go to the hospital. Now she's going to be interviewed by a doctor, by a nurse, but and have an even more invasive exam completed to uh, gather the evidence. Yeah, to gather all the forensic Mm -hmm. evidence for testing. Then she's going to go home and she's going to outcry to a friend that she trusts or family. And however well-intentioned, a lot of people then want to ask questions. Well, why this? Why that? Why did you do this? Well, that becomes another trauma because now they're essentially victim-blaming the woman who's just been assaulted by no fault of her own. So then she gets a phone call from a detective. Will you come in? We may be in there for one to three hours talking in detail about this case. Something she wants to forget, she wants to put behind her, she wants to pretend never happened, she doesn't want to think about it, and that's why they don't want to report. Now take that same scenario and apply it to a man. A man who, you know, think about Texas, right? Strong, rugged, independent. And this man's going to come forward and say that this just happened to them. Very low chance. But you do have, you do have, have those. Yes. But that's why there's a lot less male reporting survivors than there are female. Alan, what about, uh, date rape? Is that similar in, in essence? Yes. So it's all the same and correlated to power and control. Yes. What what's it like in court with a with a man as a complainant? Is that more difficult? I don't think going to court is easy for anybody. Sure. Especially with these cases. I mean difficult to get a conviction. I I don't think um I don't know how to answer that. Okay. Yeah. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about maybe categories or different types of sex offenders. So I, I'm, I'm going to assume that there isn't just one pathway of the mind and one set of behaviors. I'm guessing there's probably different categories or different subsets of categories. Sure. There's, uh, like I said earlier, the two big buckets are going to be power and anger. So power, they want to express power, domination, control. Typically, they're not going to be very violent. There's not going to be a lot of injuries and damage like what you would see in the movies, 
right? So that's those are the cases where people might refer to him as, well, he said, she said. So dating type relationships, somebody that they met out on a, in a bar or through one of these social apps where suspect may just not take no for an answer and will continue to push and push and push until the survivor ultimately relents. Or the other type of power would be the ones that you see sometimes in the newspaper with the home invasions where they will come into the house in the middle of the night. They'll use typically just enough force to get what they want, but they will sexually assault a survivor for sometimes many hours before fleeing. That the power, with the anger, you've kind of got two types. So anger, they want to take their anger out on somebody. They're angry with mom, wife, female boss, whatever it is. And they've reached this threshold where they have to release. So the survivor is somebody that is just a symbolic reflection of the person that they're angry with. And they're going to, during the sexual assault, do things to degrade and humiliate the survivor because they're angry. And then the other type of anger is what they call sadistic. Think BTK, you know, where there's going to be binding, torturing, many times leading to homicide. So the the first one you mentioned, the, where it's more personal, because they've been imprinted in such a way, or they're almost reenacting, making that victim take the place of someone in their life. Are they assaulting um, acquaintances, or are they finding random people to do this? Or do they seek out certain people and then establish some kind of small relationship with them, and then the assault's committed later? Sometimes it's a combination of all of the above, but more often than not, it's going to be a stranger. Somebody just that they happen to see, it's going to be more spontaneous. What about finding these strangers then? Do they have hunting grounds, or do they look for them in their day-to-day, and if they happen by someone, then they just take notice, and then the stalking or... Right. Whatever else so, happens. so the one that would break into your house or that would be more like a dating type relationship. Yeah, they're going to stalk. They're going to watch. They're going to go out hunting and praying um, late hours of the night, early hours of the morning. And they will identify people that for whatever reason they want to offend against. They believe in their heads that it's a dating relationship. Weird. It is. And so a lot of times what that might look like is they will be out, for lack of a better term, hunting. They'll be watching people, voyeurism-type offenses. Uh, the next step up may be entering the home. In fact, this is where you might see in burglary cases somebody that is doing burglaries for the purpose of a sexual gratification. Burglary detectives will tell you, sometimes interviewing suspects that sometimes suspects will actually have a sexual release because they're entering into somebody's house. Sometimes it's not even for the purposes of stealing property or committing an offense. It's just to be inside and dominating and controlling somebody else's space. That invasive act. Uh, 
an example, when I was in property crimes, there was an individual that we caught that after running a search warrant in his house, he had thousands of women's underwear from houses he had broken into and was stealing their underwear. So this the underwear thing, the creepos with the underwear, they obviously fall under the sex offenders there. Right. Or, you know, entering somebody's house for the purpose of, mm-hmm. you know, sexually assaulting. What about what about the guys who expose themselves? Yeah, it, same kind of thing. It's power and control. So they're gaining power and control by creating a reaction from somebody. And that shock, that awe is what's exciting them. Do they progress to physical control or physical rape? Or do they, is that their own little category or subset? They can. So... Some people may just stop there. Some may continue and go into other forms of devious behavior. When, say, a a detective is investigating a burglary and it happens to be a sex offender, I'm assuming that gets hand off to you guys because you are the experts in this. So at some point they determine maybe this person committed the burglary to commit a sex crime? So sometimes yes, sometimes no. Okay. Um. It's not unusual that we'll get a call from property crime saying, hey, why don't you guys take a look at this? Um, Because I think that there's some type of a sexual motive. Sometimes just by doing research and into some of our suspects and other cases, we'll come across burglaries or uh, criminal trespass type offenses. And we'll reach out and say, you know what, we think this might be connected to something else we're working. We're going to take that case. Can you just... um describe some cases that that really stuck with you and and, and i've i've already mentioned that you've investigated over 20 uh serial rapists here in dallas and you probably lost track of how many you've worked can you describe some cases that really have stuck with you and uh you're an artist so can you paint the listener a picture of, of of these investigations sure um Many of them stick with you for a variety of reasons. And uh, I know you mentioned that I had worked over 20 um, serial sexual assault suspects. But you almost, you didn't quite get the statistic correct. So when I first got to the sexual assault unit, I thought it would be really cool to kind of keep track of how many serial rape cases I had worked. Serial rape cases being defined as we have a minimum of three cases that we are charging an individual suspect with. And so I started counting and I got to 20 in an 18 month period that I was the lead detective, not even assisting other detectives in the unit. And then I just quit counting and it's been years since I've. So I was way off on that that number. Okay. Way off. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's pretty depressing. Yeah. We've had uh, cases where we have filed 13, 14, 15 cases against a single individual. Um, We've had cases where we've only filed three now and think about what I just was talking about, about the shame and the guilt and the fear and the embarrassment so it's not unusual when we're working a serial rape cases that we're identifying lots and lots of victims. And then we're working really hard 
to get them to cooperate with us and go forward and prosecute. And as I mentioned earlier, the numbers that don't want to report or acknowledge it are very, very high. So if I'm able to file three cases or five cases on somebody, I can probably prove 10, 12, 13 cases, which means that that person probably has done three, four, five times that because sexual assault being an underreported offense. Damn. You know, there's that phrase serial murderer, right? Or or, uh, serial killer or serial rapist. If there was somebody that killed 10 to 12 to 15 people, they'd be making lifetime movies and, you know, and, and, major motion pictures on if somebody had, had, had uh, killed that many people. They would go down the history books as some most prolific serial killers. But you, you investigate some of these, these rapists um, on these types of just horrendous crimes, and you might get them for 8 to 10. They may be good for upward of 30 or more mm-hmm. Absolutely. For, for decades of, yes. of doing this type of yes. Of, yes. Maybe there's an answer to this, maybe there's not. But just out of curiosity, as you interview these individuals over the past years, have you seen like a pattern where they have had some type of either criminal episode or maybe somebody forensically interviewed them from a medical side to saying that, hey, this individual has been disturbed like this since youth, childhood, or is this something not just that, but is that something also that people have been victimized themselves and thus act out anger and have continued this? Is there any, is there any correlation between any of that? Is there short answer? Yes. So, um, when, when you get to the sexual assault unit or any kind of really specialized unit, you go undergo a lot of training. And so the first thing that happened when I got to the sex assault unit, I was sent to all kinds of training and where I was trained by forensic psychologists who would talk about that type of thing. Um, people in pardon and paroles that were dealing with sex offenders that were recently released and monitoring their behavior and interviewing them. So I, they, they give you a big brain dump, if you will, of how this works. And I remember there was a, a forensic psychologist was teaching a course and he used this example of a man who was in his early to mid-50s and had offended. And that's when they caught him. And so it appeared on the outside that that individual had just one time offended. But as he started to research and go back in that person's history, what he found was that there was an escalation mm-hmm. and that there had been, for lack of a better term, an imprint that had occurred when this guy was a teenager and they were able to trace it back that far and where that imprint had plagued him for so long that throughout the next 30 years or so, there had been minor run-ins that with law enforcement and reports that had been made, but it was just a misunderstanding or a miscommunication but it was actually him beginning to act out and beginning to escalate. It just took 30 years, 30 plus years. He was evolving. Years. He was evolving. Yes. Can you, can you explain when you say imprint, what does that mean? Well, I'm not a forensic psychologist. Uh, it was something that he had observed 
at an at a young age that had left this memory that really kind of drove this individual. Wow. It planted a seed, I guess, into what grew into that. Yes. Right. Okay. And, uh, and of course, you know, a lot, a lot of offenders, you can go back in their history and find that they were abused as children as well. And yeah, I guess that was that part of that question too. So, the victim becomes the victimizer. Correct. In most of, or in some of those instances. Yeah. So all these cases you worked, um, can you loosely describe some really, you and I have talked about several, uh, you know, um, off offline and they're just amazing of how you identify some of these people and, and put these puzzle pieces together. And can you kind of go into uh, some specific cases that have uh, already been taken care of and it completed? Sure. Um, like I said, there's a number of cases that stick with you for all for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm obviously, for obvious reasons, I'm not going to use names, dates, locations, right. that kind of thing. Um, but Generalities. Is, yeah, exactly. But since this is an investigative topic, mm-hmm. For young detectives, I'm going to tell you a story where we identified and investigated somebody. Well, I'll leave the punchline till later. So there was a woman meets this guy. We have them meeting on video. And they walk off video together. Everything appears to be consensual. And then he violently, violently rapes her and sex and uh, robs her the next thing i have on video is her running away from him she comes back on video on another set of cameras and she's screaming for help she her clothes are torn her face is just beaten it just looks like it's been used as a punching bag and you can see in the back of the video the suspect walking on camera across the camera frame and then off camera walking home so First thing I did was contacted Knight's deployment, said, hey, I'm looking for a guy that matches this specific description, is going to be walking in this general way, and I'm just trying to think of how I can say this. The things the individual was carrying and wearing were very distinctive. So I said, this is what I'm looking for. Go see if you can find it. It didn't take two nights. And I got a phone call. We got him. So deployment sat out there. Here he comes. Same time, walking the same direction, same height, weight, uh, wearing the same clothing, had the same things with him. There's no doubt this is our guy. Now he's walking the same direction. And they follow him for a little bit. And he goes to an apartment complex where he lives before they stop him. And he had some warrants for his arrest. So they identify him and put him in. Well, I bring him in and I interview him and he adamantly denies everything. About, That's not me. I didn't do this, but I'm looking at him and I'm looking at this video. I know it's not the greatest video like a movie or a TV show, but I'm thinking this is our guy. And so he admits to having, I'm not going to go into detail, but certain issues and things 
that are consistent with the offense, mm-hmm. the things that happen during the offense. So I'm thinking, really, this is going to be our guy. And long story short, I had just this little back of my hair on the back of your neck stands up and says, don't arrest him. It's just wait, wait for DNA. So I took his DNA, had it tested. Wasn't him. Was not him. The DNA matched a known offender who happened to be home visiting his mother who lived in the same apartment complex as the first guy. And he was wearing the same clothing and had the same things, but for different reasons, all the distinctive stuff. And if you put their pictures next to each other, you would swear that they were brothers. Neither one had ever known the other. But is there any doubt that I probably could have not only arrested that individual, put him in jail, and probably even gotten a conviction, and it wasn't him? Wow. That's unbelievable. Yeah. The power of the DNA and evidence. Absolutely. Um, Has the technology changed over the time period when you started as a sexual assault detective to now? Yes. Yes, very much. So it was taking... To go all the way through the process, it was taking about two years to do all of the testing and analysis and comparison. Now we're getting, they've changed the technology and the way that the forensic evidence is being tested. And so now instead of six months to a year, we have general results back in about six weeks. And if we have a suspect DNA that we can compare directly it takes in about another six to eight weeks and then we have a match or no match so yeah we're light years ahead of where we were when i first started do you have any other cases that that you've worked where the uh the suspect has committed more than three that you can talk about that they're really complex and putting together the first one the first serial case that I worked um, very disturbing this individual would call uh, dial up escorts and when they would arrive he would uh, beat them till they were unconscious and then sexually assault them while they were unconscious and so they would wake up and he would be finishing or running away and all I had were the phone numbers he was using to contact these different women but all of the phone numbers were different that he was using. So I started doing search warrants for these phone numbers and the phone records and working through months, months. I would spend a couple hours every day getting phone records and comparing phone numbers and then researching those phone numbers. I narrowed it down to an area. This area uh, is an area where a number of different sex offenders lived which made it even more difficult. So I had gotten to where I thought I knew who the suspect was. So I called our sex offender apprehension folks and said, hey, I need some help. I need you to go do a registration check. While you're out there, maybe start dialing some phone numbers and let's see if we can hear one of these phones ring. Something. And of course, that didn't pan out. Well, he wound up striking again and the woman that was assaulted turns out an artist. 
And she said, I can draw his face for you if I need to. And I said, well, how about you look at a lineup? And so she looked at a lineup and she positively identified him. We were able to arrest him. We were able to get a statement from him, get his DNA, and it started matching. The interesting part of that is that one of the survivors came back up in another case a couple of years later. So there was another individual that was calling up escorts, and this woman had come to his apartment, apartment condo, and so he invites her in, and he directs her to the bedroom, and as she walks into the bedroom, he pulls out a claw hammer and commences to smashing her head in. So instinctively, she reaches back to guard her head, and he just about rips her fingers off of her hand with this hammer he sexually assaults her tells her that she's not leaving she's staying there officers ultimately get there when officers get there um, he takes her to the bathroom tries to kill her and he starts um, choking her strangling her till she defecates all over and long story short he winds up being arrested so i came in and yeah, search warrants for his place, wound up seizing computers and phones and all kinds of other electronic devices. As I got into those, he had been doing this. He had been trafficking women across state lines in multiple states. Turns out he was targeting one of the survivors from my first serial rape case that he was trying to do the same thing to her as well. So it's a very, very small world. And that's probably, you know, that's something else I should mention is that another reason why survivors don't like to come forward beyond the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment is these individuals target high risk lifestyle people. So your homeless communities, drug addicts, alcoholics, prostitutes, so whether escorts or um, those that are walking up and down Harry Hines. They don't trust police. They're afraid to deal with police. They're afraid to admit to police that what they were doing at the time was illegal, and that's what led to them being sexually assaulted. So it's very, very difficult to get people who don't trust law enforcement to come on board and help us prosecute. And I will say that a good number of these serial rapists target the very vulnerable and high-risk communities. Well, that's because even society probably doesn't look at them as, uh, as somebody, if somebody gets sexually assaulted in uptown Dallas out at a club, it's going to be treated differently than, than the prostitute that's over on Harry Hines. And it, how it's looked at and even how it's covered in the media. Yeah, I mean, it's that way with uh, a lot of offenders in any kind of crime. You look at like, active shooters, where they're going to target? They're going to target the schools or the big population areas, easy, easy, easy targets, not going after hard targets or people who wouldn't necessarily put up a, a big fight. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting you mentioned about finding that computer of that suspect and he had been stalking or trafficking one of your other victims from another one. Makes me wonder... Have you ever encountered an offender in some way, a cohort with another offender where they share notes or share things? Or is it these offenders are usually so shameful or secret enough that they don't, 
they don't share in these crimes with others. That's a great question. You know, because it's like sex trafficking of kids. I think I would think that there's probably some collaboration there with sharing materials and being passed around. So some of these offenders have contact with each other. But what about these sex offenders? It's a great question. Um, we have seen it. It's not as common as one might believe, uh, but it does happen. Most of the time, well, here's something that stuck with me in my early training in sex assaults. It was a class being put on by, I think, uh, parole and pardons. And they started talking about the difficulty of monitoring sex offenders and making sure that they're staying within the guidelines of their parole terms. And interestingly, they said that the best way to monitor them is to put them in a halfway house with other sex offenders, which is just mind-boggling, right? And you think, well, I don't want a whole group of sex offenders living together in a house down the street from me, right? But what he said was... It, it, Nightmare house. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, that definitely devalue the, the, the property. Right? <laughs> It it, it it stuck with me to this day. He said it actually has the reverse effect. He said because they find what they're doing perfectly acceptable, but they view when somebody else is doing it the same way we view it as that is completely reprehensible and no, um, they don't want to deal with it. So because they're sex offenders themselves, they're more likely to see the signs of their housemate beginning to reoffend, and they will dime out to the parole that is officers. So interesting, isn't it? Well, I but none of them some bitches slept well in that house. <laughs> 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 All right, you've uh, you talk about. All this physical evidence you mentioned, what is the importance of physical evidence with this type of offense? Well, it's very important yeah. right? because with physical evidence, it, it, it all depends on the case, right? So we can do the simple things like fingerprints, right, which everybody uses for burglary and car burglaries, that kind of thing. So we are going to look for fingerprints. The big question, I'm sure, is all of the biological evidence and the sane exam or safe exam however you want to say it i want you to get into that in a minute but that, describe that to the to the listener because i'm not entirely sure what Me the sane exam is okay well it's a rough process so the survivor comes in meets with the doctors and the nurse so the, of course first thing they're going to look to do is stabilize any major injuries anything like that Past that, there's going to be an interview, not completely detailed, but similar to an interview that our patrol officers would do. There, what that nurse is looking for is where were you touched, where, you know, what was penetrated, was a condom used, not used, so that they know what to look for, what to swab. And there's going to be internal, external swabbings that are taken as well as very invasive photographs of the process. And what happens then is everything gets packaged up and it goes directly to the Dallas County Crime Lab for analysis. And those same nurses, they're very, uh, 
that's a very specialized training they have because I, I have a I have a really good friend going back to high school. His wife, uh, shout out Danielle, she's a sane nurse, and she had to go through extensive training for that. And there's not many of them, and a lot of them are on call, twenty four. That's out. correct. Okay. And do you have a relationship with them? We do actually. So uh, here in Dallas, we have a very coordinated response. They call it the SART team, and we work very closely with the same nurses, especially the coordinators at each one of the major hospitals. All of them have my cell phone number and use it if they need to at any time of the day. Um, We also have the Dallas County uh, DA's office as a part of this, all the same nurses, the um, advocacy groups. We all come together on a monthly basis and talk about the response, what we could do better, what we could just do differently, and why. It's like a it's like a review board, basically. Is that what essentially okay? The big information sharing between everybody involved within the sexual assault community. What what does SANE stand for? SANE stands for Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner. Okay. And I said safe earlier because a lot of jurisdictions use the term safe, and that's sexual assault forensic exam. Obviously, being a specialized unit, there's different methods, different resources and tools, and just a lot of different experience. I don't think, and you will probably agree with me, that any detective on the department can do this job. Obviously, there needs to be a certain level of training. What about personality as well? Or even go further how does investigating these type of crimes differ from the commonality or threads that we have that are in common with all the other investigative bureaus with property crimes, crimes against persons, shootings, assaults? How, sure. how is this process different? Well, um, <clears throat> everyone is different because of the general personality of an individual that will commit a particular type of crime. For instance, a burglary suspect typically, now I'm not saying it's 100%, but typically is going to be less confrontational. They're breaking into your house for the purpose of stealing property, right, to sell, make money. They're breaking into the house because they're hoping or believing you're not there. They don't want a confrontation with you. So they tend to be less confrontational individuals. Again, it's not 100%, but generally speaking, well, Contrast that with a robbery case, robbery where somebody's going to put a gun in your face and take your property or punch you in the face, take your property. That's a much more confrontational individual. So when you're interviewing somebody that is confrontational, you're going to be much more confrontational in that interview. So two different offenses, both um, involving property, but very different way of interviewing the suspects. So when it comes to sexual assault or any kind of sexual-related crimes involving children, it tends to be the same way, right? So these suspects are not going to be individuals that are typically very confrontational or aggressive. Reason I say that is, as we talked about the differences with a power rapist, that's about 85% of your rape cases. The sadistic, like the BTK, you're talking 2%, 5%. And the remainder is that anger. So even anger is a small percentage. So these tend to be people who will use only enough 
force to achieve what they want to achieve. So a little bit confrontational, but overall not exceptionally confrontational individuals. So if you were to take a very confrontational approach with them, it's not going to work to your advantage as an investigator and interviewer. So without giving too many details on your techniques, what is the approach you use when you're talking to these offenders? Well, um, I let them tell their story. And have you ever seen the Tom Segura first 48 episode? I don't know. Stand up. Well, he says in there, you know, he's talking about the first 48 TV show. And he says, they always say, well, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to explain my, I'm going to explain all of this to those detectives. And he says, no, you're going to be doing 25 to life. So when it comes to sexual assault cases, many times, as I mentioned earlier, these individuals are fairly narcissistic. And so they really believe that they can talk to you and explain their way out of this investigation. Normalize it. Yes. So they want to talk. So very easy usually to get them to come in and talk and tell their side of the story. Hmm. Do they find ways to justify it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's not the way that things happen. This is being over-exaggerated, lying. She wanted this, that kind of thing. Is that consistent? Generally, yes. Because again, like I mentioned earlier, there's no street credibility in jail or in prison for committing sexual assault. Even other inmates and convicted felons don't like sexual assault suspects because that could be my wife, that could be my sister, that could be my mother. So to get them to actually say, yes, I did this, she said no, and I continued is extremely difficult. I know you've said before that not any detective can do this job as a sex assault detective. Is there anything you want to explain on what detectives you think can do this job or what it takes to do this job? Well, I think that you should be experienced in another type of offense investigation for a few years before coming to a specialized unit, for sure. Whether that's homicide, sexual assaults, SIU, child exploitation, child abuse, that... And then, two, you really have to have a very patient personality to sit and listen. And I think you have to be pretty tenacious, generally, to be a detective. But you really have to be very, very patient with both your survivors as well as your suspects. Just a generality, but one of the things that's always stuck with me is when survivors come back. And they'll reach out. It's become, or at least for me, it's been common where I've gotten calls, cards, or even, will you be the one to come and pick me up at the airport because I'm coming in for a plea agreement or for the trial? Will you be there? Will you be there with me throughout the trial and sit with me? So they show a lot of faith and trust in you, and that's a huge responsibility. You're, you're an anchor point in this investigation for them, I guess, in some ways, right? I, Grounding them. I believe so, so. Obviously, they're opening up to you in ways they went to other people, whether they have to or because they choose to. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, they're looking for that stability and that trauma case. Absolutely. Is there resources for victims or survivors? 
Yes, there's a lot of resources. So when a survivor goes to the hospital for an exam, depending on which hospital, there will be usually an advocate that responds along with the nurse and will provide them literature about all the different programs that they have available for different types of resources, counseling, that kind of thing. When a survivor comes in for the detailed interview with us, we also have advocates that are there for our survivors on our floor that after that survivor meets with us, we'll have them meet with our victim services people who will provide additional resources and information to help that survivor going forward. That's good. Right. When, like we mentioned earlier, there are so many long-lasting effects to having been sexually assaulted that may not even appear for two and three and four years. And it's going to manifest in different ways. And so having access to different types of resources is very, very important because, well, different, different things work for different people, right? And maybe what works for me right now might not work in three years. So having access to resources, I think, is an extremely important thing. Sure. Detective, how many sex assault detectives do you work with? We have eight right now. So are you always on call? About every seven weeks or so, yeah. And is the city of Dallas, is it busy? It's very busy. So give our listeners a perspective on how busy. So as a sexual assault detective, now I work sexual assault cases for adult strangers only. I don't work anything involving kid crimes, and I don't work anything involving family members. So we're very, very specialized, right? Even still, with us eight detectives, we're averaging about 20 cases a month each. And now, when I say that, I'm not counting the cold cases and or if you... If you start working a case and it connects with other cases, now you just brought on another three or four, five cases, however many. I'm just talking about what's assigned to you. Do you work with other agencies? All the time. Do these offenders go outside of our Metroplex? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. You you have um, offenders that cross state lines. Uh, we've connected cases all over the country. And like a lot of people, they watch shows on serial killers. It's the same with Absolutely. serial rapists. How off base for shows like CSI and the reality of gathering <laughs> evidence? Because we got a lot of li- I we have know a, that too. We have a lot of listeners that that watch that. Sh- there, there are civilians that watch that, and probably some police uh, that actually watch it, and they think that they that you can get evidence uh, in certain ways. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I I do really wish that the Dallas Police Department would be the recipient of that machine where you can scan somebody's retina and see what they saw for the last 20 seconds of their life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or or, or walk out to the scene of a homicide and roll somebody's fingerprint right across your cell phone and all of a sudden it'll pull up their driver's license photograph. Yeah. Those would be great things to have, right? You don't have that? Those are on our news. Uh, phones for the city 
Uh-huh. Yeah, did it? Really? You didn't get one, Alan. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> you don't know. I do it all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Talk to us about CODIS. C-O-D-I-S. What is CODIS? Sure. That is the Combined DNA Index System. It's managed by the FBI. And what what happens when a sexual assault kit is completed at the hospital, it gets sent over to the Dallas County Crime Lab where it's analyzed. Any DNA profile that's found, male DNA profile, assuming it's the suspect, right, not consensual partners, is going to be uploaded into the into CODIS. So matches occur in two ways, right? So you'll have prof- an unknown profile taken from a sexual assault kit that's uploaded, and or you'll have, well, first, that profile gets uploaded. It's an unknown profile, but we know it's a suspect profile. So we'll get what's called a case-to-case match, where that one case will match other cases anywhere in the country. And so that's when we start working with other detectives and other agencies. We start reaching out, try to learn more about their investigative process, if they had identified a suspect or not, where their investigation stands. Many times it could just be unknown. The other thing is we have the convicted offender profiles. So these are suspects that we have identified in cases that we've worked and we've had their profiles directly compared against cases. Already in a database. Yes. And we also have here in Texas, right, anybody arrested on a felony charge is having their DNA taken, and that gets sent to the state, and DPS then uploads those profiles. So we can also have what's called an a known offender match. So we'll be notified that a known offender has matched the unknown profile from the sexual assault kit for a particular case. And when that happens, now possibly we may know who our suspect is. So when these kits go in and then there's a match or a hit, what's that time frame? It all depends. Um, we've, we're still having matches from cases from many, many years ago. We're having matches right now from cases just two years ago. Um, just in the last two days, I've had cases from 2017, 2019 that have been matching each other. Going back to the serial rapist you've investigated, what are some of the common components you've seen in each? Well, they're all different, right? Because just like everybody else, everybody's unique and different. Um, everybody comes to become a unique individual. At the end of the day, some of the common things that you'll find is a strong sense of narcissism, a complete lack of... They view other people as an object. They don't view the person sitting across from you as a human being, so to speak. So they can control you, do what they want to you. Um, what about their relationships and their personal life then? I mean, are those semi-normal? Or do they distance themselves and look at relationships the same way? It, it all depends, believe it or not, because... If you believe, if you believe some of the spouses and um, 
significant others that I've interviewed, they'll say, I never saw this coming. I never could have imagined that this was happening. But you also have to think to yourself, well, you're married to this individual, and this individual every night is leaving between 11 or 12 and out all night hunting. What do you think that they're doing? Driving for, you know, one of the driver apps? Yeah. So I, I think that they know, but for many reasons, choose to ignore or um, not acknowledge what's happening. Yes, yeah, deny it too. It's just a denial. And they don't, I mean, that's, that's the worst of the worst. I mean, you don't want to think that your significant other, no matter how they treat you, it could be like a total Jekyll and Hyde uh, relationship, right? Treat them somewhat decent or, uh, or treat them greatly. And then they have to go and feed their, their cravings and, and, and have a whole nother life that they go and lead, right? Absolutely. But, you know, if you're going to go out and sexually assault a stranger, what makes me believe that you're not going to sexually assault your significant other? Yeah, well, that, man, that's, that's tough. That's, the common characteristics in the suspects, narcissism. Narcissism. Um, and like I said, it's all about power and control, domination. Um, the anger and sadistic type sexual offenders are going to be more like a robbery suspect, right? Very confrontational, very aggressive. It's all about authority, power, control. What about age commonalities or common age? Or what's the oldest you've seen? Well, uh, there's pretty much runs the gamut for adults. So far from my experience, it appears that um, they may slow down as they get older. But again, we, we're back to the problem of not reporting. And so that's a big hurdle to overcome. Is, do you find that a lot of the suspects, uh, especially the serial suspects, are they married? Do they have another family, another life? Yes. Really? Absolutely. And, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, they have pretty decent personalities to sit and talk with probably from their narcissistic uh, base, but they're somebody that if I didn't have a mountain of evidence and know that they did this, you would think, well, this is actually somebody I could be friendly with. So it, there is no, this guy's sitting over in the corner with horns on his head that you can spot somebody walking down the street and say, that's a rapist. They blend very, very well. Wow. And, and yeah, they, and then they have years of, of, uh, of forming that mask they wear, right? Yes. And, and, hiding, and hiding their eyes and, and having stories. And, and, and there might be a point where they actually believe that shit about themselves that they've built up as far as being a, a good person. You know, I, don't, I, I question that. I don't okay. know if they believe it or they just put on that mask. Because if, with the lack of empathy and uh, just completely objectifying people around them, I, I wonder if they really and truly um, have any kindness in them. So you go through all this and, and the victims uh, after the investigation, what is that process like, like for the victims? Because we, we have a lot. I, we have some listeners out there that I know have gone through this. And, and, and there's some people that struggle with it after the fact. Can you, can you describe the process of how that looks uh, in, in general? Sure. Because, sure. of course, it's going to be different for yes. everybody. 
Um, so let's go back to my earlier example, right, of the woman who's living alone and this person comes in and violates their home and violates them. They have immediately lost all sense of control. They have no control at all, right? And so through the process of calling 911, talking to fire rescue, talking to police officers, talking, that whole thing I talked about earlier, it's even more of a loss of control. So a lot of times what you'll see in the future is they start to act out as they're trying to regain control. And so... Like in what way? Well, they'll start to live higher-risk lifestyles. They may start to abuse alcohol and drugs. Um, Their interpersonal relationships tend to struggle with, again, because of the loss of control. And they struggle very, very hard. So one of the things we, we always do is include the advocates as much as we can throughout the process and advise them even when they say no I'm fine and I can handle this myself I will talk with them and say I really really advise you take advantage of any of these programs because in the future some of this may be coming back and it may hit you a lot harder Um, in fact that's probably a really good time to talk about the different responses by survivors. So I'm sure everybody's heard this before, right? Being officers. Well, if a prostitute on the street calls 911 and says that she was sexually assaulted, how many times have we all heard, well, that's just theft of service, right? Like a prostitute can't be sexually assaulted. And so that's the first problem. The second problem is when somebody goes through a very, very traumatic event. So let's not talk about sex assault for a second. Let's talk about officer-involved shootings, right? Our policy is how many days before we bring an officer in for a detailed interview. It's usually a couple of days. The reason being is what they call the neurobiology of trauma, how the memory or your brain and memory work during a traumatic event. So, and then three is the general response. So everybody's going to respond differently. So some people might cry, some might laugh, some might be hysterical, some may be completely deadpan. All of these things contribute to the way that this person who is making an outcry to officers is viewed as credible or not credible by law enforcement, which then, depending upon how those first first responders treat that survivor, is going to shape and define how the rest of the process works and whether they want to continue to cooperate with us as investigators or even go forward into the courtroom. So um, there is no standard response for making an outcry or responding to having been assaulted. So the belief that's out there, well, you know, this is a real deal or this is not a real deal. And I know because I've had five years of experience, you know, in patrol 
is completely unfounded, and we need to get rid of that stigma. We also need to get rid of the thinking that how that person's responding is going to be an indicator, and how we address all of these survivors that are making these outcries, that we do believe them, and try to give them a sense of control back over their lives, like allowing them simple things, like allowing them to choose which hospital they want to go to for a SANE exam instead of saying, I'm taking her to Park- Parkland. Well, no. How about you ask her if she wants to go to Methodist? Or maybe she wants to go to Presby. Um, and those are options in the field for police officers? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And... I know I touched very briefly on neurobiology of trauma, but I'm, I'm going to paint a picture for you, being an, the artist that I am. Let's do it. Yeah, we haven't got to that well, yet. Let me get the easel, easel out. <laughs> hang, hang. All right, the easel's out. <laughs> so during a traumatic event, right, your brain only is going to focus on that which it needs to survive, right? So we all generally know, right, being involved in officer-involved shooting all of a sudden, your hearing's going to go. You're in a tunnel vision, focus on just the end of the gun, see the bullet you know, come out of the end of the chamber. We all heard that. Well, one of the other things that, one of the things that happens is that directly affects memory and how, what you remember and in what order and how things worked. So this also now contributes to when a survivor is making an outcry after having gone through this very traumatic experience and they're trying to explain to first responders first responders what happened the story doesn't seem to make sense well no because you're just interviewing right after this traumatic experience so here's my analogy it's like sitting in college and you're taking notes all day um, in your class lectures but the notes that you're taking can only be taken on post-it notes. They're not numbered, but you have them in order and you're taking notes. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes and kicks your desk. All of these notes fly up in the air, and some land in books, some land in drawers, some land in file folders, some are underneath the desk. And now your task is to find all of these different post-it notes and then put them back together in the order of the notes that you took. That's a near impossible task. So when we have first responders that are responding and interviewing somebody who has just been through this event and the story doesn't make sense because, well, what happened next? Well, then what happened? Well, then what happened? Well, you just told me that that happened first and that happened second. Now you're telling me this happened second and that happened third. Well, that's the reason because their brain is trying to reorganize all of those memories. So for that reason, that's why SIU for a police officer involved shooting or us for why we wait at least three days to interview so that they can decompress, they can relax, the brain can begin to relax and begin and resort those memories as best as they can. When you allow a certain amount of days to go by, if we do that, you find a better response from somebody being able to have more clarity, more recall of the events as opposed to we're going to interview them right now and they're still traumatized, right? If you're lucky, they can talk, right? So 
Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. We get a very different, very different interview than we would get immediately that night. In fact, in cases where a suspect's arrested right away, I mean, our policy is, right, you're going to call a detective and a detective is going to come in. So we will interview the survivor that night, but we're not going to do a two and three hour interview. We'll do that in a few days. We're just going to get the basics of what we need in order to go and interview that suspect. And that way we can make a better determination whether he's going to, what's going to happen with the case. Do you see a big change in uh, like the stories from the night that it happened and after they actually relax and put the pieces back together somewhat like you de- you described? Well, you're going to have more detail, obviously. Right. So generally speaking, no. Okay. Right. So you can get a general idea pretty quick that night, but it's all of the details that are going to come back later. So after my interview with a survivor compared to a first responder, I've got a mountain more information about what happened than we ever could have gotten immediately after an assault. I think you mentioned earlier there's a lot of misconceptions with um, date rape. Can you explain that more? Sure. Um, I think we were talking specifically about like uh, drug facilitated date rape. Yes. So I know that there's a common perception that there are people who are out there drugging roofies roofies yes the ghb and the roofies and i think generally most people know that there's at least 500 different types of drugs that can be used to render somebody um, unconscious and unable to consent and it's been all over the media especially somewhat recently the most common drug used to commit sexual assault is alcohol. Um, what will happen very simply is just drinking too fast, blood alcohol level rises too quickly, and people fall into either unconsciousness or blackout states, which we can talk more about, and sexual assaults occur during those periods. Um, the idea, if you think about the person who goes and drugs somebody's drink to render them unconscious and have sex with them is essentially a necrophiliac because this is somebody that's excited about having sex with a non-involved partner, right? This is an unconscious just body. So when you put it in terms like that, it's even more disturbing. Wow. The way a blackout works, a lot of people don't have misunderstandings about blackouts and unconsciousness. And just because, you know, alcohol was involved doesn't make it a sexual assault. So here in Texas, law is pretty clear. You have to be unconscious and unable to consent. So just because alcohol is involved or somebody's been drinking doesn't mean that they cannot consent for sex. Um, Blackouts are different than being unconscious. Unconscious, you're essentially asleep. You're not participating at all. Blackout is a state where memory is affected. There's a number of factors that will influence how quickly your blood alcohol level is going to be increased, right? And so... The way you think about a blackout state 
is, have you ever had one of those days where you're driving to work or home from work and you get there and you think, how did I get here? I, don't, I do not remember this drive. That's a blackout state. It just wasn't caused by alcohol or drugs. So in a blackout state, what's happening is you're making the same decisions you normally would. It's just not leaping over into long-term memory. And so blackout states, then a person is walking, talking, acting normally, and therefore the issue of consent becomes one that is much more difficult to prove than if somebody is completely unconscious. So I'm sure the next question is going to be, how do you decide that? Well, yeah, that and, uh, well, how do you decide that? But also, what causes these blackout states besides alcohol? Is there anything else? Like I said, the, the most used drug for date rape is going to be alcohol. So by far the most common. But other types of drugs like GHB, Rohypnol, or the roofies and things that um, we've all seen in the movies and heard about. Interestingly, blackouts, blackout states by drugs and alcohol have... Is that something that we sure. use? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I need to stop. <laughs> okay, part. so then that's my next question. <laughs> How do you determine these blackout states? So or is we, that confidential? No, that's not confidential. That, that is toxicology. Okay. So as a part of the sexual assault exam that's conducted at the hospital, there will be a blood and a urine draw. That blood urine will be tested for not just alcohol, GHB, but other types of narcotics. So as a part of the interview process, you know, some of the questions we ask, especially if there is an allegation of a drug or alcohol facilitated sexual assault, is what types of things should we find? I bring that up because that's a question that many times can be viewed as offensive. But the reason we're asking is to determine what should be there versus what is there so that we would be able to prove um, their level of intoxication and or whether they may have been drugged by something other than alcohol. Do you have any um, tips for our listeners out there for safety to prevent or to, things to look out for? Absolutely. So number one, ha the buddy system. Remember the buddy system from being young? Don't leave your friends and go off and forget about them, especially when alcohol is involved. Um, a lot of offenders look to place themselves in positions of trust. So think about a bar. You may have a, bar a uh, bouncer, kind of security, who's there to look out for and watch people. I'm not saying bouncers are rapists, sure. but rapists try to associate with positions of trust. Think about service people coming into your house to do any kind of services or installation. Usually would be a good idea to have somebody else there. Um, don't trust anybody. What do you feel like your best skill set is? Listening. And do you feel like listening in an interview, really listening, gets more out of you for your investigation? Absolutely. Why? 
because it's all the little details that I'm looking for. You know how I mentioned earlier that there's a common belief about what sexual assault looks like from TV and movies, right? Well, so that's one image, but the reality is it's very, very different. And it's in the details that you're going to build a case and you're going to be able to identify a suspect. So you have to be extremely patient and an excellent listener to get all of the information that you need instead of trying to rush your way through an interview. We've all seen it, right? Especially if you're in patrol and you're just doing a burglary report. We've all had the partner that won't necessarily let the complainant talk, keeps interrupting the complainant. You can't do that. My first hour, hour and a half, sometimes even two hours in a room with a survivor, I may not say a word. Or if I do, it'll be small direction type things. Exactly. With listening, you're absorbing. So how do you how do you absorb all of this and then decompress? Well, you know, everybody who knows me knows I'm going to say whiskey and cigars will <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> will be a long life. <laughs> the reality is, um, I, I really try hard not to bring it home and just leave it at work, and I go to the gym and push around a lot of weight. You know, you and I were in, stuck in a room last week together, so <laughs> I got to know you a little more. But someone else brought up how this job changes you. And this job obviously changes all of us, but specifically as a sex assault detective, how that changes family relationships. Has this affected you in any way, changing your relationships and what might be different from a normal family? I. That's a great question. And so, yes, absolutely. Um, I'll start with the police officer, right? Because we're not normal. You know, I, I think Chief Ramirez is right, right? As he says that, you know, uh, police officers aren't normal. And because of what we see and we're exposed to, everybody should be in counseling, right? I, I believe he's right. So we're different than everybody else. And so that already puts us in a category by ourselves. Well, so I, I can tell you definitively, I am a very different person having become a police officer than I was prior to that. Now, going to the sexual assault unit has completely changed me even more. Um, I think about things differently than I would even as a police officer. I see things differently than even if I was a police officer. And a lot of times almost wish I could turn off what I see and what I know. Um, you said you wish you could turn some things off. Give us an example, like things that you see. So, um, or things you think about, right? So this is a common one with anybody that works in sex crimes and or child crimes, right? Being a parent, having kids. Kids want to do sleepovers. First thing that happens is your antenna goes up. Whose house is my kid going to? Who are they? Do I trust them to be around my child? Yeah. Or kids come to your house. You don't want to be there. You want to be in a back room. Stupid example. I know I gave this to you uh, the other day, Danny, but... Um, when my kids were playing sports and if I had to go to the bathroom, I would grab one of my other kids. 
you're coming with me and you're going to be standing right there with me because I don't want any kind of misunderstandings or anything. I want to make sure that everybody's safe, which is a ridiculous thing to think about. But if you're in the sex crimes world and kid crimes world, that's actually a really big deal. You're talking about for the safety of the children, correct? Yes. About people walking by them or being unattended. Yeah. Well, and, it, and you freak out, too, about sending your kid into the bathroom by themselves. Oh, yeah. You for know? sure. But I see it all the time where, you know, you could be at church or a sporting event and you'll see a four-year-old or a five-year-old go walking off to the bathroom. And I'm thinking, that is so irresponsible as a parent. It's because you see the worst of the worst. And, and right. what, yeah, the worst case scenario that could happen. Speaking of parenting, tell us about your, your son on the department. Oh, he's, he's doing a great job. He loves working Northeast. He loves being a patrol officer. Do you still make one of the other kids go to the bathroom with him? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do you call him up? Yeah. Like, oh, 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 I'll no. be there in a minute. You can go by yourself. You know, Trust these police. Northeast <laughs> officers need their hand Northeast. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it's funny. Um, before he was a police officer, right, and he lived with us, and he woke up one morning and he said, you know, Dad, I've heard so much from you about sexual assault being accused of sexual assault he goes i had a nightmare last night that i was accused of sexual assault i said good you hold that <laughs> don't forget it give a shout out of his name joseph holmes badge 11 4 31 i believe 32 wow. man getting on up there <laughs> keep him coming getting on I'm, get, up I'm there. getting that seniority <laughs> um i want to talk about one part of your uh your career that's really unique i mean you your whole career is unique and uh pretty uh extraordinary how'd you become a sketch artist for the department you were the dallas police department sketch artist yes so dan town we all know dan dan was retiring and i had a home invasion case that i was working and so i brought him in and asked him to do a sketch and i thought you know I have a degree of this. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should do something with this instead of just, you know, Cub Scout, uh, Pinewood Derbies and school projects, right? So I talked with Dan about it and uh, Dan gave me lots of directions to go, lots of advice. And uh, then we asked Chief Castro to approve it. And after a while, I went off to class. Did you bring your work today? I did not. No. Um, I brought something. I uh, <laughs> tell me if this would uh, cut mustard for a uh, sketch. That is Anybody? actually fantastic. <laughs> for the district, it's, it looks like the Unabomber with a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're, Mario. So you're saying I have a chance. Yeah. All right, all right. Well, when yeah, you, sorry, Misty. Yeah, well, did they send you to training, or are you just blessed? How does it work? So, uh, so I went to training. Uh, the training, they really expect that you can draw, right? Okay. Not everybody can, but they really expect that you can draw. So see, I have a chance. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. A chance there. Actually, I'll tell you a story here in a second to show you how much of a chance you have. And so uh, I took Lois Gibson's course. I don't know if anybody, that name rings a bell with anybody. Is that the one you used to like, become an artist you, in the paper? You see an ad like to draw the parrot, the turtle. and the, Remember that? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, uh, Misty got that. 
Okay. I think that shows our age. Yeah, it does. Well, it shows. Yes, it does. He's smiling over here. All right. So, so no, she is. At, she just retired from Houston PD, and she was their sketch artist, and for many, many years. And she's in the Guinness Book of World Records for having done the most police sketches that led to an arrest of an offender. Mm. So she did a training course that I took. And most of it was about witness memory, cognitive interviewing, a lot of the evidence management collection. So a lot of it, stuff that's really second nature, a lot of training that we have here as police officers and certainly as a detective. Um, And they teach you how to do everything from witness memory sketches to uh, facial reconstructions, looking at video and extrapolating from the video what that individual may may look like or if you see only half a person's face how do you turn that head and make it look like a three-dimensional head i'm sure it's it's right <clears throat> yeah it's it's fascinating and i don't remember where i saw this there was some uh like sketch artist fail or something i i don't know something along those lines and it was like they're just wheels off drawings man they were just like who in the and it was a legit sketch you know and you're i mean it makes mine look like a picasso I mean, it's pretty I, I, you, you, can you sign that and give that to me please i'm gonna frame it i will <laughs> how often do you get called like are you busy sketching i do on average about one a month okay i, I dan is still doing them and i thought when I started doing it, that with me being there all the time, that maybe it would take away from what Dan was doing, right? Because he uses that for his reserve duty time. But it turns out he's continued to do one about an average of one a month, and as well as I did. And so we just doubled for Dallas Police Department the number of sketches that are being done. What do you feel like is the most rewarding work you've done on this department? The sexual assault investigations, as well as the using my abilities as a sketch artist to help other uh, detectives, even in other agencies, as well as the survivors. You told me about a uh, one of your most challenging sketches you did, and it was and it was a child. Yes. Can you just, can you describe that and and what it led to? Sure. So. The most challenging sketch I had a young child like under six years old, who did not speak English. And I thought, oh boy, this, this one's going to be hard. And uh, so I went in, I had to work through a translator. But, you know, it's very difficult if you ask a child, well, was the person black? Were they white? Were they Asian? They're going to, they look at you like you have three eyes. They don't understand. So it, the interview process part of that was challenging Even more challenging was the way we do the sketches, to further answer your question, Misty, is I have a photo reference book. It has different eyes, different ears, different noses. And so I can, I'll generally start, I'll start with a general description, right? Say, are we looking at a black male or a white male or an Asian male? And are they, you know, how big, how heavy, right? So you can kind of get a sense of the shape of the head. And then I'll have them go through the book. If you see the head shape, point it out. If you see the eyes, and I'll start to put them all together. Well, this child was not cooperating. (laughs) 
with um, going through my book. And so, and of course, didn't speak English. So we did the entire sketch with the child motioning with their hands, rounder, wider, smaller. And that's how I wound up doing the sketch. And I was, I was very nervous about it, to say the least, right? Because I don't know anything about the case. So um, I called the detective and I said, okay, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> and so he listened to me talk about it for a minute and he looked at the sketch and he said, put a beard on him. It looks like that's my suspect. It looks exactly like his driver's license photograph. And if I show you the picture to this day, you'd be amazed. So what I wound up doing was buying a piece of vellum and then I put the vellum on top of the drawing and then I put on a beard. And if you compare that against the driver's license photograph of that suspect, it looks like I looked at the driver's license photograph and drew the picture. Damn. Wow, that's impressive. That, that, was, that was an interesting wow. one. Wow. Do you get called to testify on your sketches? Is that part of... Yes. Yes. I, I just recently testified in a case that um, because of the sketch, it wound up connecting a whole bunch of other cases and getting him caught by another survivor who had seen his sketch on TV. Hmm. It was another agency's case, and I don't know that we're past sure. the civil right. statute time. So That's so incredible and rewarding how it spiderwebs out and the type of offenses that you investigate and your work with the, the sketches captures so many and prevents so many future offenses. Absolutely. Can we... Can we put one of those on the social media site? I mean, do we have one that we can use to, like, show your sketches? It's a good question. I'll have to go back and look. If you find one and, and see, and if it's the, okay and appropriate, give it to Joe. I think that'd be cool to see. Yep. i tell Very you what cool. else was interesting. My first four, yes, my first four sketches <laughs> were of the same suspect with uh, from different offenses and different uh, witnesses from person that was sexually assaulted to – a child that witnessed to a friend that was hiding in another room and watched her friend be sexually assaulted. Mm. And the interesting thing is each one of the sketches looks different. However, when you put each one of the sketches up next to the offender's uh, picture, you can see what each one of those witnesses keyed in on and what was the, what this was the most distinctive feature of that suspect them all together it was him yeah oh, absolutely wow. cool that's science i mean that's just i mean that's putting it together and it put that's yeah, incredible what a great skill yeah it's it was it was interesting the biggest challenge for me was going from observational drawing like you look at a picture of somebody and then you draw it or an object and draw it to you're essentially drawing it out of your head yeah you have some reference photographs but you're building this person's head. you have to make it all work together and make it look like an actual person so it's more what they call imaginative drawing you and i've talked about this and we're, we're getting close to wrapping this up but are there any cases that are out there that are kind of just your white well and you know who the suspect is and you just cannot complete that puzzle to capture them 
Yes and no. Okay. So, uh, yes, there are people we know who they are, but we can't go forward because really of all the things I talked about earlier, we cannot get one survivor to cooperate. Not mm-hmm. one person wants to go forward. And if we don't have a cooperating complainant, we can't move forward, even though we know and can prove multiple offenses if we have nobody to cooperate and testify. And sadly, there, there might be future offenses. Sadly. <clears throat> I got one final question for you. What is next for Sergeant Allen Holmes? <laughs> <laughs> now you're setting expectations. <laughs> for the listeners, uh, he took the Sergeant test recently and did quite well and um, – well, well, hold on. Yeah. I, I did well on the written. We just finished the assessment center, so we yeah, well, we have yet to yeah. see what's going to happen with yeah. that. Quit downplaying it. But anyway, what's next for you? Wherever my skills, experience, and expertise helps for the betterment of the department, wherever they see fit to send me. I, I hold no expectations or... Um, yeah, I just hold no expectations. Well, the city of Dallas is lucky to have you, and the citizens are lucky to have you uh, looking after them and investigating their cases. Uh, I hope the city recognizes your talents and you're placed somewhere that you're going to do the most good. I want to thank you for coming on here. Uh, I know I had to nudge you for several months to get to get up here, uh, but you're fantastic. Thank, thank you. you. I appreciate it. Alan, thank thanks for your service and thank you for your dedication to your craft it's very obvious that you're a very well-spoken very well-educated individual and and very dedicated to what you do and and raising a family as well it's not easy and so thank you for doing that thank you you'll make a great sergeant i appreciate that we'll see still have a long way to go (laughs) thank you thank you all goodbye folks